Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. time to rise and shine. Okay, that's what I would say if I were, you know, walking right now into the bedroom of one of the kids in my house. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. So I'll just say it to you instead. Uh, Good morning. All right. This is the March 10th, 2021 version of Mornings with Carmen, hour one on the board today. Ryan Mitchell. Ryan, good morning. Morning. How are we doing? I'm good. I figure your mom just, you know, probably likes to hear your voice every once in a while. So. <laughs> yeah, that may be true. There you go. Shout out to moms today. Okay, so where in the word are you today? I am in Psalm 145. Here we go. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 145 goes on. I commend uh, its entirety to you today. I was caught up uh, by verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. It is our responsibility as those who know the Lord, know the wonder of who God is, know the reality of his dominion over all time and all places and all things. It is our responsibility, those who have received not only the general revelation of creation, but the special revelation of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, it is given to us that we should be the ones who then commend the works of God generation to generation. It's our responsibility to declare the mighty acts of God in this generation that the next generation might come to see God for who he is and fall in love with him again. So from generation to generation, let us be the people who are declaring that God is and God is good and we are his. And that changes everything. In the Old Testament, it's called the Shema. Jesus referred to it as the first and the greatest commandment. Um, You will find it in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. You will also find it on the lips of Jesus, where he repeats it to those who ask. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's the Shema from the book of Deuteronomy, and it is also the first and greatest commandment. Are we living it out? Are we teaching the reality of who God is and our devoted love of him diligently to our children, to the next generation? Are we talking about them when we sit around in the house and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise? Oh, friends, let the glory of God be on our hearts and on our lips this day. Next up, I've got George Barna bringing us some more data from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Hold on to your hats. Here we go. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Joining us again today, Dr. George Barna. We're going to talk about some more of the post-election survey outcomes um, that he has been working on. And today, specifically, we're going to hone in on those who supported the election of Joe Biden as president of the United States and how likely they are to hold a Christian worldview. George, welcome back. Uh, Good to be with you, Carmen. So I did not um, ruin, I did not rob you of the joy of telling people what the survey uh, results indicate. So um, are Biden supporters more or less likely to hold a Christian worldview? Well, it, it's a pretty clear-cut case here. They're, they're a lot less likely. You know, and part of the reason that we look at this is because a person's religious beliefs and behavior are a key part of their worldview, and worldview is tightly connected to people's policy preferences and cultural choices. So when we look at the Biden voters, we're talking about roughly 81 million people, or so we're told, and that's uh, roughly 31 percent of all adults in America. If we look at that particular group, by self-identification, 65 percent claim to be Christian. Now, that's lower than the national average. It's much lower than the average among Trump voters. But then when you start digging a little bit deeper, you find out a lot of things about their beliefs. You know, the fact, for instance, that 56, uh, excuse me, 57 percent of them would say that they're not deeply committed to practicing their faith or the fact that 56 percent would say that they're spiritual but not religious. The fact that when we look at them on a theological basis, only 15 percent of them uh, would be born again. Only 30% of them believe that the Bible is the actual or inspired Word of God and is relevant and trustworthy. Uh, And, and of course, one of the most important ones is that three out of four of them, 75%, say that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. All truth is up to the individual. So, you know, you, you start putting that together, and it's a very different perspective than you get if you were to look at Trump voters. Okay, so... Um, let me let me using your own survey results describe Trump voters to our listeners. Um, overwhelmingly, Trump voters identify self-identify as Christian, would be active in a Christian church, would describe themselves as theologically conservative, 
um, would believe that absolute moral truths exist and uh, that those moral truths are defined by the Bible, believe that eternal salvation is based on Christ, uh, be, uh, on faith in Christ alone, embrace the reality and characteristics of the Trinity, and have a biblical worldview. So when we talk about um, specifically people who um, supported the election of President now President Joe Biden, I think that what we're trying to help people see is that these are people who overwhelmingly still regard themselves as, as spiritual and define themselves, I mean, for 65% of them to self-identify as Christian, I, I recognize that's lower than the national average and certainly lower than Trump voters, but it's still a pretty high percentage. So how are they defining that term? Well, in, in America today, the, the term Christian is almost a genericized word. It's kind of like when we talk about getting a Kleenex, you know, or going to make mm-hmm. a Xerox. And, and so if you're in America and you have any kind of religious orientation that isn't Muslim or some distinctly non-Christian orientation, you just call yourself a Christian. But it's interesting, you know, this thing about almost six out of 10 of them saying they're spiritual but not religious. I've done a lot of work on that over the years. And what we know is that when somebody says that, what they're saying is, well, I'm not trying to live according to the Bible. I don't really think of myself as a religious fanatic, you know, those people that read the Bible or try to live by it. Basically, what someone who says I'm spiritual but not religious means is I'm trying to be true to myself. I'm trying to live in the moment. I believe that the ends justify the means. And so my morality is defined by me, not by the Bible, not by a church, not by Jesus, not by any external power. And that gives these people a sense of personal power and fulfillment and comfort and convenience and internal consistency. Basically, what they've done is redefine these terms it, you know, in, in, in our world, it's, it's known as reframing. And so that's what's basically happening. They, they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't believe that they're accountable to any kind of superpower, supernatural God or anything. Really, it's all about themselves. All right. I am talking with Dr. George Barna. We are talking about some of the findings um, from the Arizona Christian University uh post-election survey. You can find what we're talking about today at culturalresearchcenter.com, culturalresearchcenter.com. Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, George, I'd love for you to help me understand if, if, if someone says they don't believe that moral truth is, you know, defined outside of myself, let's say by God, um, and that it's left up to each individual then there are no moral absolutes because there is no moral truth outside of the self. How does that apply to everyone all the time? Like, how is that, how do we live together in a shared world um, where literally everything is defined by and decided by each and every individual? I'm going to ask George Barna that question in just a moment.
Continuing my conversation with Dr. George Barna, we are talking about the latest research, post-election research. You can find it at culturalresearchcenter.com. All right, George, I teed up a question for you. Um, I'll reframe it. Biden voters are more likely to believe that moral truth is up to each individual and there are no moral absolutes. Um, Where does that leave us in terms of living together? Because, you know, I think the modern mind experienced cognitive dissonance like you were you actually created angst when you tried to believe two opposing views at the same time. What you're telling us is there's an awful lot of my neighbors who uh, believe opposing things simultaneously, and they're not uncomfortable with it. They're only uncomfortable with it when you don't believe those same conflicting views. Basically, what's happened in America now is by throwing out our shared vision of how to define morality, of how to figure out what is right or wrong, good or bad, appropriate, inappropriate, what we've done is we've created a situation where contradiction is the norm in your thinking, in my thinking, in our mutual experience, where conflict is going to be something that consistently happens because there's no longer any accepted arbiter that we can go back to. Each of us now becomes our own arbiter of right and wrong. And when we conflict, there's really no way to address that, there's no way to overcome that conflict unless we simply consistently agree to disagree, which makes everybody unhappy. We go away thinking the worst of other people, not understanding why they're not as smart and as good as we are. But basically, you know, when John Adams wrote that our Constitution, which of course is based on biblical principles and truths and morals, that that Constitution is only meant for a moral people. This is exactly the kind of situation that they were hoping to avoid. And so we're now in that that place where the founding fathers said, wow, if we give up on basic Christian biblical perspectives on how to live life, it's going to get ugly. And that's what we see happening today. So when we hear John Adams um, and we hear you articulate the concept and the idea of a moral people, um, I increasingly encounter individuals who would describe the people of that era as particularly amoral. And therefore, um, if you're, you know, they view themselves today as, you know, as so woke as to define morality um, and therefore they would say, well, the Constitution is perfectly well-suited to the morality of this group of people today, and you just don't rightly understand the Constitution. You're trying to understand the Constitution as captive to a particular, you know, way of defining those words and terms. And, you know, you sort of need to get with the program here, George, and um, and think of that as a fluid document in much the same way that these people would regard the Bible as, you know, a living, breathing, fluid document. Yeah, and I guess my my point of view is is that the Bible is not the same kind of living document that they're trying to make the Constitution to be. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms what God believes is best for us, and he's given that to us so that we can thrive. Mm. And if we choose to turn our backs on that, 
there are consequences to that choice as there are to all choices that we make. And so to say, well, you know, we've got to interpret uh, the Constitution or even the Bible in modern terms is upside down. That was given to us by an eternal God who's omnipotent, who's omniscient, you know, he knows everything, and, and he's giving us what's best for us because of his love for us. The founding fathers understood that kind of love and said, let's take the Bible and interpret that into a government document so that while people are supposed to govern themselves, there are going to be situations where there has to be some kind of external influence. And we want that external influence to be consistent with the truths and principles that the God of all the universe, the God who created us, the God who loves us so much, he gave us a book to tell us how to live. We want to be consistent with that because we know that based on his love for us, it's in our best interest. So when we turn our back on it, we're turning our back on our own best interests, and we will pay the price for that. Hmm. One of the outcomes of this conversation and the inquiry into, you know, how do certain people think about certain things? You know, you and I would both recognize that ideas have consequences. And so let's talk a little bit about the consequences or the way that these ideas among a now, you know, demonstrated majority of Americans in terms of the election of the current president, um, the way these people are thinking about things leads to principles that lead to policies that lead to practices. Talk with us about um how the religious views of Biden voters directly translate into policy preferences. Well, you know, one that a lot of Christians would be interested in perhaps has to do with abortion, mm -hmm. where you've got a large majority of Biden supporters, 60 percent, who believe that the Bible is ambiguous on the matter of abortion, that you can make a compelling biblical argument for abortion you can make a compelling biblical argument against abortion. And therefore, again, it comes back to the individual. It's all up to you how you choose to interpret it and what you choose to do, how you choose to live. So, you know, you, you look at that, you look at some of the other perspectives that they have. I would expect, based on their beliefs, that Biden supporters would be likely to support uh, continued restrictions on worship, religious worship throughout America, uh, eliminating tax exemptions for churches, promoting alternative faiths and, and worldview perspectives in public school classrooms and curriculum, uh, you know, giving more favorable treatment to Muslim nations and regimes, regardless of their past actions or their stated intentions for the future. You know, and it goes on and on from there. I mean, we can talk about additional policy uh, prescriptions that are likely, but essentially it's repudiation of everything that the Trump administration, administration stood for, everything that the Trump voters of the nation stand for, and in most cases it's repudiation of biblical principles. Yeah, and it's a real challenge, I think, for um, for those of us who— appreciate what the scriptures say and believe it is absolutely God's best for us, not only individually, but as a people, you know, just to recognize we just have an awful lot of neighbors right now um, who view things very differently than we do. Um, and we now have uh, 
the House, the Senate and the White House, um, you know, all working in one direction um, in ways that feel very contrary to a Christian or biblical worldview. So I think it will be interesting, George, to see the places where, you know, over the course of this administration, Christians can com- can find common ground and common cause. Um, but those, I think what you are pointing out to us is that we should not expect those um, places and spaces to be very numerous, um, and we might have to hunt hard to find them. Um, any any closing thoughts as we uh, conclude this particular conversation today? Yeah, just, just one point of perspective and context here, and that's that when you look at the Biden vote, the largest share of his vote, spiritually speaking, comes from this group that I call the don'ts. And, mm. you know, those people who don't know if God exists, or they don't believe that God exists, or they don't care if there's a God. And so that was the largest share of his vote. They're the ones, of course, who are most likely to reject biblical principles. And so when he goes to his quote-unquote base, that's what his base is. And so when Mr. Trump would go to his his base, the people that voted for him, it was a completely different perspective. And so the policies he put into place worked for them. When you look at Mr. Biden, the policies he's put in place will work for the don'ts. And by the way, that is the fastest growing faith segment in America today. So I understand politically why he's playing to that group. Not only did they vote for him, but they're rapidly growing. And basically, they give him carte blanche to do anything he wants. So it's a very different approach to government than we had just a few months ago. Yeah, you can get some whiplash uh, talking about these things for sure. All right, that's Dr. George Barna. You can find what we're talking about today at culturalresearchcenter.com. Our conversation was based on a nationwide post-election survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Um, And it was conducted November 4 to 16 of 2020, so just immediately following the election of the current president. Um, George, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be with you. Likewise. We'll be right back. So yesterday in my conversation with Justin Gibney, I was um, sort of, I'll just say provoked by the spirit to ask about why we remember or return to particular events in history, why we commemorate what we do, why we um, have certain days that we set apart and we go back to the place. I'm thinking here of the bridge in Selma, Alabama, um, or 9-11 would be like, why Why are there certain places and spaces where, you know, from a biblical worldview, we, we set up a pillar of stones and a monument and we return to it and we memorialize it and we say, this is a place Uh, to which we are going to return in order that we will remember, we will become members of this event again. And so I thought that in my conversation with Ruth Kramer today for Mission Network News, we would um, return to one of those anniversaries that my guess is if I asked you what happened 10 years ago on March the 11th, you might be hard pressed to recall. But that might be because you live in the United States of America and not Japan. Now, if I tell you that the event we're returning to is the 10th anniversary of something that took place on March the 11th in Japan, 2011, 
your mind might immediately remember. We're going to talk about why we remember what we remember and the anniversaries that matter to us and why we choose to remember or commemorate or pass down generation to generation certain things. Again, because I'm wandering around in Psalm 145 and what it means for us to pass along to others what we in turn have also received. Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News is up next. Every day around the world, thousands of teens run away from home. No two cases are the same, but all parents who've been abandoned feel a deep sense of pain and failure. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you've ever had a child run away from home, you know the heartache that consumes you. There's nothing like the loneliness of a quiet household and the unanswered phone calls. Though I can't bring your child home, I can encourage you with this. The principles you've instilled in your teen have not been wasted. The seeds you've sown in his life will come to fruition, just as the Bible promised. Waiting for that return on investment and the homecoming of your prodigal will never be easy. It's your choice to wait patiently for the runaway and cling to hope. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining me again today, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find her at missionnews.org. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So um, you teed up for me a a memory, a conversation about the 10th anniversary of the triple disaster in Japan. And so I want to talk about that. But I'd also like to talk with you about why anniversaries matter, what we choose to remember or commemorate or pass down. Um, because you might have some personal observations and experience um, because of your own, you know, life and where you come from and the people from whom you hail that I might not share. So can we talk a little bit, in addition to talking about the 10th anniversary of the triple disaster in Japan, sort of why we remember what we remember or why we build monuments and commemorate certain things? Yeah. What do you want to start with first? Either one. Just go, okay. just just go whichever. It's, it's a conversation. You you lead. <laughs> uh oh, here we go. <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk about the serious stuff. You know, Japan is coming up on the tenth anniversary of the Great East Japan earthquake. So that was March eleventh, two thousand eleven, and it was the strongest earthquake in Japan's recorded history. So nine point on the Richter scale. The tsunami that came in was up to 20 feet high in some places. Um, It displaced hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, More than 22,000 were dead or missing. And most of the people in the area where the tsunami hit lost their homes. On top of that, you had a nuclear meltdown and a whole other level of disaster that came about as a result of what was going on there. Um, I think one of the things that is, is... interesting is that you're going to see a lot of articles coming out tomorrow about the reflection of the anniversary, progress that has been made or not made. And yet we can look at something like that and and see God's fingerprints in the process. There is a, a Japanese art form um, called kintsugi, which basically takes broken pottery and mends it with gold. 
So the patchwork that you see as a result of that is no longer a broken piece of pottery, but a new piece of art. And that's a great um, word picture, I think, for what God has been doing in, in Japan. When we look at an anniversary like this, of the significance of what happened with to Japan, the scars that it was going to leave, the um, devastation uh, that that it created, um, and how hard it was for the country, and we're reminded again, uh, just last month, with a powerful earthquake that struck the same area in Tohoku, um, and just reminding people of what happened. Uh, really, literally shaking people to their core uh, as they're dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff, the struggles of the pandemic, uh, and and all of those things combined. Um, you can step back and also see the kintsugi, the golden patchwork where God has brought together people from the brokenness of Japan. Asian Access is one of our partners that's out that's out there, and as a result of what happened uh, from this disaster a lot of ministry has been born in Japan. And in this area, it used to be um, called like a graveyard of missionaries because people were so resistant to the gospel. And at the time of this disaster, there were maybe a handful of churches. I'm not going to say how many, but there was maybe a handful. And the pastors that were that were leading those churches were very discouraged because it just they weren't getting any any traction. People were not responding to the gospel efforts. Um, and the church membership itself, the church bodies themselves were small and isolated. But as a result of this disaster and the tireless efforts that the body of Christ instituted to try to respond to the needs, the physical needs that were happening uh, as a result of this, um, you've seen a church network be planted in Japan. And now they have pastors in Japan that are dreaming of planting 50,000 churches by 2035. Um, there is a ministry that was born of the crisis, and it's called Nozomi Project. Nozomi means hope. And what they did was they went around and collected broken pieces of pottery and turned them into jewelry and then sold those pieces of jewelry to people and from the proceeds were able to help support families uh, as they were trying to recover because that's a fishing industry in the, in the area where uh, the worst part of the disaster hit and um, people just didn't have a livelihood anymore because of the nuclear fallout, because of all the other issues that were coming about. They needed to find another way to support themselves and Nozomi Project came about to help them support themselves. So you look back and you see an anniversary like this and you say, um, these are God's fingerprints. This is what God has done in answer to prayer on how can we be more effective in this area. We're not necessarily, we're not saying pray for disaster. That's not at all what we're talking about. But on anniversaries like this, it's important to remember um, what we prayed about so that when we see answers that are coming about, we can see that golden patchwork of God's fingerprints. I, I just love that. I, um, I, there is much to be made of this. All the ways that God takes broken pieces and using the very finest of gold um, brings them back together and not only makes them useful for himself, but beautiful, beautiful in the eyes of the world. So thank you, Ruth, for um, that image this morning of Kintsuki. Um, thank you for taking us back to a point in time, for many of us half a world away, um, where we you know, where we watched and for people for whom we prayed, but frankly, we then got distracted by many other things uh, in the subsequent 10 years. So I really appreciate the way that you bring 
the story forward and help us uh, see how God has been at work over the course of time uh, in a particular place among God's people, you know, who are working in very, very redemptive ways um, in places and spaces that most of us will never visit. So thank you for taking us there. I'm talking with Ruth Kramer for Mission Network News. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to turn our attention to refugees from Venezuela, many of whom here in the United States have now been granted temporary protected status by the president. We're also going to talk about um, the many, many Venezuelan refugees who crossed the border into Colombia. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. that you'll find posted at missionnews.org is about Venezuelan refugees who crossed the border into Colombia. Um, Ruth, bring us this story. Well, uh, Venezuela has been in economic crisis for quite some time. The United Nations says more than 5 million people have fled Venezuela since 2015, and that's largely due to the difficulties that they've been facing. It, it, it doesn't seem like it actually tracks because Venezuela is like the breadbasket of that region. Um, however, we've also seen uh, the the largest humanitarian crisis uh, that's developed underneath that administration uh, become a, an actual um, problem uh, where people are leaving the country because they don't have access to any of those oil reserves or any of those um, resources that the country is so famed for. Um, They are fleeing violence. They are fleeing uh, the lack of resources, and they're going anywhere that will accept them. So they've been heading a lot of them to Colombia. I think there's a concern that there's uh, uh, maybe two million uh, Venezuelans who are um, have arrived in Colombia, and Colombia has agreed to grant them legal status within the country. That pr- protection um, is meant to uh, provide services as people maybe try to resettle. Uh, the U.S. followed suit. The Biden administration said this week it'll allow many Venezuelans, maybe 320,000 Venezuelans who are already in the country, uh, to remain. Um, because of the humanitarian economic crisis in Venezuela. Um, That also means that they'll be afforded services. So we're talking um, uh, access to um, schools, uh, jobs, medical care, those kinds of issues so people can actually um, uh, stay in the United States. It it means, um, in essence, that uh, we are changing our, our stance to illegal refugees, uh, illegal um, um, aliens in the United States. Um, We spoke with uh, AMG International uh, about this, and uh, it's mainly because AMG International has work in Colombia, and they are going to be pivoting now to uh, address some of the issues because they do work with refugees. Uh, So they are going to be uh, trying to help provide some of those, uh, those issues with access to medication, shelter, um, and other things that are, are necessary for people to kind of get traction and find a, a rhythm of life in, in Colombia. Um, in this situation, because AMG serves as the hands and feet of Christ in, in, uh, to the refugees that they're serving, it opens the door for conversations uh, that may not have existed in, in these refugees' um, 
sphere of influence prior to their their coming into contact with AMG International. Um, it's going to be a challenge. So AMG is actually as, does ask us to be praying. Always we need to be praying about wisdom when we're dealing with um, how to share resources with uh, uh, unplanned visitors. So be praying for that. And, and also just ask for opportunities. Uh, ask the, the Holy Spirit to really pave the way for that because none of this stuff is actually going to matter unless the Holy Spirit prepares the heart to receive that message. Yeah, uh, most uh, most people who travel across international borders, particularly when it requires a trip like Venezuela to the United States of America, um, you know, they came on temporary visas of one kind or another. They then overstayed those visas. And so um, we are talking about people who arrived here probably to stay with family or friends um, and and probably have a much more robust network of relationships here in the United States than do uh, many of the people gathering at the southern border of the United States right now. And so the the temporary protected status conversation is a different conversation um, than the conversation about those who migrate into the United States um, illegally across the southern border. And it, it differs in uh, in scope as well in terms of um, the resources that are provided to people who are here in the United States with temporary protected status. However, temporary protected status, everybody should recognize the front word on that is temporary, and it leads to uh, long-term conversations when um, when the timeline on temporary protected status runs out, because we in the United States have not been uh, good at all uh, about uh, inviting people to return to their country of origin when their temporary protected status runs out. So those are all conversations that we'll be having going forward in relationship to this. Let's um let's pivot Ruth one more time and talk about a letter that a bipartisan group of senators, 54 of them, so the major- majority of the US Senate actually sent to the President of the United States um close to a month ago now uh condemning the authoritarianism in Turkey. I know that it received global media attention. You guys gave it attention at missionnews.org and it also drew a response from um sort of the Senate's counterpart in Turkey. Tell us what is uh what is it that the these 54 US senators are so upset about? Well, one, let me back it up a half a step and, and say that coming into the beginning of the administration, there were a lot of questions on whether or not the Biden administration was going to um, continue moving forward uh, efforts to protect religious freedom everywhere, uh, the stand that the administration was going to make. And at the time, it seemed like the, the response was, we think he's going to continue moving forward. We think he's going to um, make this a priority. And this appears to be along the lines of what we were hoping was going to happen. Uh, in that, the these senators are saying, we need to keep an eye on what's going on in Turkey. We, we don't think this is good because uh, the situation with the administration in Turkey um, is likely to uh, squash what religious freedom does remain. And and even when we're looking at that, the uh, the issues of religious freedom have a long history of being violated. Uh, so this letter that you're talking about mentions things like the Armenian genocide, Turkey's role in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the recent war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and uh, all of the situations that are going on with um, the purging of independent judges, jailing journalists, the expulsions of 
uh, certain Christians and um, the the crackdowns that we're seeing across the board. Um, and so this is just kind of calling attention to that and saying we're watching, and this is not something we're going to let slide because uh, there there's a definite problem that uh, that needs to be addressed here. Um, so far, you know, we don't really know how Turkey is going to, how seriously Turkey is going to take this letter. Their response seems to be issuing a report that says um, that everybody's making a too big a deal out of out of some of these issues. So basically, the director of communications released a report that justified the genocide uh, in the Nagorno-Karabakh situation, the 40-day war that actually started back in the fall of 2020. And the the ceasefires or the failed ceasefires that continue on to today are still part of uh, what's what people are talking about because there's concerns that uh, you know Armenia the Armenian Christians who were once uh, the target of a a genocide that Turkey still won't take responsibility mm-hmm. for there's concern that there's there's too much pressure on those people that they're losing their land that that it's it's you know a power grab and they're losing a place to live or a place to stay because as the situation uh devolves turkey has been known to put a lot of pressure on christians um they have made made it very clear that they really want to be a muslim state that they are not going to be very friendly to people who are not uh, following the ideology that the state decides is going to be um, their state religion. So there are concerns about human rights abuses when you don't have the freedom to express your thoughts. There are concerns about religious rights because people don't have the freedom to worship as they want to. There are concerns, as you see on the other side of things, where Turkey has been expelling foreign missionaries, foreign pastors, uh, Christians, uh, specifically, exclusively targeting them, that uh, pretty soon they're going to just shut down as much as possible the Christian voice, uh, mm-hmm. the ability for f- followers of Christ to openly follow Christ. So that's partly why these senators are saying we're we're watching you, um, because when you have something like this, then you have the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and uh, you have the ear of the State Department. Pressure can be put on in this situation uh, where it has some teeth, where you might have some sanctions that are issued because of this kind of thing. And that has been a, a tactic the U.S. has used in other situations to some degree of success. Uh, other situations, Venezuela, Sudan, um, you know, uh, right now my, my I can't think of some of the other countries that <laughs> Sorry, Russia. <laughs> well, Russia, Iran. Maybe we'll use Russia. Yeah. yeah. All right, Ruth, yeah. we are going to you and I are going to have to leave it right there. We are out of time, but we love talking with you. Thank you so much. Want to direct people to missionnews.org, not only for these stories, but lots and lots of others. Um, Ruth Kramer, uh, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. I love how robust the conversation is this morning on the text line. Um, keep your input flowing. It's, it's like a group chat. I really appreciate it. So the, the text line number, which is always open, is 877-933-2484. I would be remiss if I didn't invite you to what we're doing on Sunday night at 7 p.m. Central. 
Uh, we're doing a live stream event focused on kindness. Nicole Phillips and I will be on for an hour, and we need you to join us. Uh, it will be on the Faith Radio Facebook page as well as the My Faith Radio YouTube channel. You can check it out at MyFaithRadio.com. And while you're there, join our Mark uh, March Mark reading plan. All kinds of other great stuff going on. So, yeah, check it out on the website, MyFaithRadio.com. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. John Brandon is going to be back. Don Everts is going to be back. And Paul Perot is going to bring us up to date on some really, really important news in the Twin Cities. Yeah, yeah, that's my tease. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.